0: The majority of podcasts that cover entrepreneurship and startups focus on the happy ending, the success story. The startup that was acquired for $100 million or had a successful IPO like Roblox. Well, what about the startups that don't make it? According to a Forbes article, 90% of startups fail, but you never hear about those stories, mainly because our society loves successes, they love champions, they love winners. The word failure to many is a scary word, but it's also a powerful tool for success. In the startup world, failure is often seen as a teacher. There's even a conference on failure called FailCon. However, the ability to learn from failure and be given another opportunity is not distributed equally for people of color and especially for women. BBC recently published an article that found that white men are overwhelmingly allowed to learn from failure and mistakes compared to women and people of color. That applies especially to the startup world. Even women in BIPOC employees in leadership roles receive more harsh judgment than white men for minor mistakes at work from dress code to displays of emotion, according to a 2020 research study from Utah State University. Former First Lady Michelle Obama called out this disparity by saying, I wish that girls could fail as bad
1: as men do. I wish that girls could fail as bad as men do and be okay. Because let me tell you, watching men fail up, it is frustrating to see a lot of men blow it and win and we hold ourselves to these crazy, crazy standards.
0: From 88.9 Radio Milwaukee, this is Diverse Disruptors, a podcast about those leaders, entrepreneurs, and trailblazers who found their own way to innovate and did so with inclusion and accessibility at the forefront. This is where our guests on this episode of Diverse Disruptors come in. Priya Amin wanted to solve a major problem for working moms, childcare. Priya, a mother of two, created an on-demand childcare platform called Flexible to tackle the $54.3 billion childcare market. Based in Pittsburgh, Flexible's mission was to make work and life fit better for professional parents. As a woman of color, she faced many challenges like raising capital and keeping her startup going during a pandemic until she eventually had to make a tough decision. I talked to Priya about not only failure, but the challenges working mothers face every day, raising capital, dealing with the pandemic, and more. But we start with her childhood, growing up in New Jersey. What was your childhood like? What were your parents like? Were they entrepreneurs too?
2: No. In fact, my parents are immigrants and they moved here in the late 60s, early 70s. They're from Chennai, like South India. Okay. And um, they had an arranged marriage, Um, really interesting, but it was a culture shock for them to come here, but they chose to come here. And I'm eternally grateful that they did because they raised us in a way where we had both Indian cultural values and American cultural values. We grew up in sort of a suburban part of Princeton, New Jersey, and I had a really wonderful childhood. I can look back at it, tree and say, honestly, I had a very privileged, um, upbringing mm. and it's funny cause you don't often hear folks that are, you know, Brown or black to, you know, think about privilege in their lives rampantly. But I honestly feel like I grew up with a lot of privilege. I have two parents that are still married and I lived in a house. I, we had a car actually. Um, sometimes we had two cars. I was well-educated. I got the things that I needed. I got, um, you know, healthcare and whatever was needed was there. And it was great. I mean, I'm not going to lie that the immigrant mentality is is a tough one mm-hmm. and it's hard, um, to be first generation in a, you know, in a country like the U S where they're not as, you know, open to diversity as you would hope. So my, my parents definitely got the, the brunt of it. They dealt with a lot of racism and a lot of prejudice, but, um, Yeah. I mean, I I can't say anything terrible about my upbringing. I was very lucky. Um, I also had a mom who stayed home for a portion of my childhood, but then went back to work. And I was able to kind of see her transition from being home to working and how that made me feel and how that sort of created this um, just lens for myself in terms of what family is and what it should be what do they do exactly they both are scientists my dad got his phd in biotechnology and was uh at at kind of the premier um level of his his field he did a lot of really cool research on cancer and cancer research and was just really um in a formidable place in his career My mom worked in nutraceuticals, so things like vitamins and supplements Mm. and stuff like that.
0: You know, you hear these stories about, you know, the first generation, their immigrant parents are very strict, wants to be a certain career and if they do something deviates from their their vision for the kids, it's (laughs) all hell breaks loose. Did you have those issues with your parents? Like you were supposed to be going to do this, you can't do this. (laughs)
2: Yeah, um, it's funny because in my I have an older sister and I think in my parents' minds, one of us was gonna be a doctor, one of us is gonna be a lawyer. My sister is the lawyer, I am not a doctor. What I did do though is follow in my parents' footsteps and I got my undergrad degree in biotechnology and then was like, yeah, nuts to this. This is not what I want to do. So I completely deviated from that. But to your point, I think that's part of the immigrant mentality, which you know, as I've grown up, as I've, you know, kind of gone into adulthood and had children of my own, I very much understand and appreciate what it must be like to leave your family and leave everything, you know, and move somewhere else and just feel like a fish out of water. My, my parents, especially, you know, just, it was keep your head down, just keep moving forward, just do what you can to keep things as stable as possible. So mm. we didn't rock the boat, right? You just keep things as steady as possible. And then I graduate and I'm like, ah, am nuts to this. I'm going to move out West and I'm going to get a master's degree and I'm going to get my MBA and I'm going to become a dog trainer and I'm going to go skydiving. And I did all these crazy things. And my parents were like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, and I think that happens a lot with first generation born kids is, you know, their parents want to make sure that they succeed and, you know, mm. success looks different for different yeah. people. And so for my parents, it was, how do you make sure that you keep your life as steady and as successful as possible?
0: Were you a good student in high school? Did you get straight <laughs> A's, 4.0? What, what was your, what was your I t- t- high, high school like? I,
2: I feel like, I feel like I've always been sort of a quote unquote, like had have, have the entrepreneurial spirit or whatever. I was not a great student. I was like straight B's, like sprinkling some C's. Like that's just basically where I kind of sat. I think my parents would have liked me to be a straight-A student, but I certainly (laughs) wasn't.
0: Did you have issues of being a, you know, child of an immigrant in school? What kind of experience, personal experience did you have with that? And did that play a role in later in life as far as what you wanted to do?
2: Yes and no. So the interesting thing is growing up when you don't have uh, an anglified name, Um, it's hard. And you don't really understand why that's hard. But at the same time, there was always this sort of underpinning in my life where I just wanted to be somebody else or have a different name, have a different identity. Because for some reason, uh, my name was hard to pronounce. My name was, you know, foreign. My mom, too. um, You know, there was times where people would ask if they could call her a nickname because Mm. her name was too long or too (laughs) hard to pronounce. And That was, you know, definitely interesting. So, you know, to your point, Tariq, as I, you know, got older and, you know, as I figured out my own identity, I thought about that a lot when I had kids. What do I want to name them so that, one, you know, these are names that have some sort of meaning or significance, but two, they're easy to pronounce. And it's terrible that, you know, it has to be by a certain standard. It's usually, you know, Western American standards of like what's pronounceable and what isn't. Along those lines, too, um, you know, my maiden name is Raman, and that name was shortened, actually. My dad um, shortened our last name when they moved here Mm. to make it easier for people to (laughs) announce, Um, which I just, again, it's it's kind of fascinating to think through that and think about, um, you know, just changing your identity, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, in order to acclimate. I definitely... I experienced that level of, like, those sort of microaggressions, right? Mm-hmm. Of people being like, Pira, Pira, Priya," mm-hmm. Like, it's Priya. It's not Priya. <laughs> But it sticks with you, you know? Yeah, I
0: hear that. Growing up as a daughter in an Indian household, Priya says her parents always worked to protect her, to shield her from the bad things in the world. She says she grew up with a lot of fear.
2: I don't know if this is uh, pretty standard across the board for immigrants, but you know, there's always this sort of level of fear, right? Like just make sure that you're careful that you are, you know, just be as cautious as possible. Mm. I just, I was afraid of everything. Mm. And so I was, Oh my God, I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of insects. I was afraid of dogs. (laughs) I was afraid of heights. And at a certain point I just said, I don't want to be afraid of anything anymore. So I started figuring out ways to get over my fears. So an example of that was, I was bitten by a dog when I was yet little, I think I was seven and I was deathly afraid of dogs forever and ever. And then I was like nuts to this. I don't want to do this anymore. So I became a certified dog trainer. Cause I was like, (laughs) let me just figure out what it is that makes dogs tick. And then I'm just going to do it.
0: So that's how you tackle your fears. You, you go head on. And like, you not, most people say, I'm going to just hang out with dogs. You decided I'm going to be a dog trainer.
2: Yeah. And I think part of it too, I think was just that again, that underpinning of like, what can I do that does
0: just is good. So like speaking of the fear, like the whole idea of entrepreneurs and startups, that's a person to do is that can't be fearful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a risk. I mean, you know, so you think that helped you when we get to probably you're doing this facing your fears, and realizing that helped you pave your path to your entrepreneurship journey.
2: Yeah. One of the biggest fears I had was um, failing. <laughs> That was one of my biggest fears It's just, oh, my God, what if I fail? But I always wanted to start a business. That was actually why I went to grad school. My grand plan, Tariq, was to um, start a doggy daycare. That was my whole thing. So I wanted to figure out how to be an entrepreneur. So I went to grad school for that. I could have probably read a book, but I went to grad (laughs) school, got my MBA and wanted to open a doggy daycare.
0: Fresh out of Rutgers and ready to start building her doggy daycare empire. Priya is exploring options for grad school. Having lived her whole life in New Jersey, Priya decides she needs a change of scenery, new experiences, and no snow. And she lands on University of Arizona. So you're in Tucson. So talk about your experience down in Tucson. You were what, you're getting your MBA. What were you thinking? You are still thinking about the doggy daycare at the time and still in Tucson? Or? <laughs> I don't know
2: what I was thinking. I think I was just thinking... I like being in the sun and I i just, I, I don't know, I was just always weirdly open to possibilities. Once I left home, once I kind of left sort of like the nest and left um, underground, just felt very comfortable in uncertainty.
0: The scenic landscapes of Arizona and the wide open spaces made an impact on Priya, totally different from her East Coast upbringing.
2: I remember uh, my now husband, we were dating at the time. We drove out from New Jersey to Tucson and we stopped in this little town called Cameron, Arizona. There's actually a Native American reservation there. And we got out of our car and it was like literally the middle of nowhere, where if you look down one way, you see nothing and no one. You look down the other way, you see nothing and no one. And I just remember being like, this is so cool (laughs) and just being like, this is so awesome and so humbling to be literally in the middle of nowhere. And my husband and I, were, or boyfriend and I were joking, like, if something happened to us, we would just die right here and nobody would even know. And it's such a strange feeling because I, I remember telling my mom that after, and she's like, oh, but what if something happened? What if you got hurt? I'm like, but that's that's it. Like, we're, we could get hurt anytime. It's just mm. understanding your role in this like cosmic everything, right? Like we're just one little thing in the grand scheme of it all. And it was like a very amazing reminder to be standing in the middle of nowhere and be like, something had happened to us and nobody would know about it. And whatever, <laughs> it's humbling.
0: Feeling small next to the incredible vistas, it gave her pause and perspective. She stays in Arizona and completes her MBA. By this time, she is exploring options with big companies. Her first gig out of grad school took her back to the East Coast she landed a job with IBM. While she said the experience was quote, fine, it still left her feeling unfulfilled. After about a year, she moves on to another role, this time in a position that got her closer to her passion for animals. But even that would be short-lived.
2: And I found a job with Nestle um, in St. Louis and it was with their Purina division. So it was dog food and cat food. And it just felt like a really it's nice, dog exactly. It felt like a really nice mix and, you know, sort of bringing all the pieces together. So then we moved to St. Louis. I had my first child. And it was still, you know, it was great. There is something to be said about the immense security of, you know, working for a large organization. You have the clout, you have, you know, the security of benefits, you have, you mm. know, really smart, intelligent people that you're working with. You just have a lot of good things. But for me, I don't know, again, if it was ADHD or what, I just needed more. I needed autonomy. I needed creativity. I needed something more. And so I did the scariest thing I could possibly do. And I left my job. And... Why? So, was great question. It wasn't like a random, like, Tuesday where I was like, oh, I'm leaving. It was <laughs> more um, a slow buildup, unfortunately, all built around the fact that I um, didn't feel supported uh, after having children. So up until having kids, I felt like, this is great. I could do this for a long time. This is awesome. I could travel. I could go to happy hours. I could, you know, just work on my career trajectory, reading is great. And then you have kids and then you realize, Hey, um, this doesn't feel as balanced anymore. And hold on. How come I'm like super tired, but never ever feeling like I can fill my bucket ever. I, I, from the moment I had my son, even though my family was incredibly supportive and helped out so much when I went back to work, I felt either I wasn't getting enough time with my son. I got maybe a half hour to an hour every day with mm-hmm. him at the most. Or I just always felt tired and drained. And so I felt like there was this lack of balance. And, and you know, speaking with my employer at the time, this was over, almost a decade ago, over a decade ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they were receptive, but, you know, I'll be diplomatic in saying this. I don't know if they knew what to do at that time to support. Were there a
0: lot of women in your situation at at the company? So
2: that's a great question.
0: In the position you were? Yeah,
2: that's a great question, Trink. Yes. However, I feel like a lot of women in in my position either weren't afforded the agency or didn't even know that they could ask for things like flexibility or on-site childcare or, you know, part-time hours or whatever it may be. It was almost like this well-kept secret that if you knew the right people and if you talked to the right folks, then maybe you might get this flexible schedule. But for the most part, it was either you gotta work the regular hours or find something else. Mm.
0: This is a choice so many new moms have to make. Uh, This uniquely American balancing act. The pressure of giving your best to your kids and your job. It is literally impossible to do both. Yet countless women face this dilemma every single day.
2: I just felt drained all the time. I didn't feel like I had the capacity to kind of figure out the ways to to maneuver mm-hmm. that, and so I, I left my career after over a decade in in the corporate world, and it was hard, man. It felt like falling off a cliff.
0: What were you going through, like mentally? Did it affect, like, did you go through depression? Like, how did it affect your your life at home then when you quit? Like, you know, yeah.
2: So yes, I struggled quite a bit with both depression and anxiety. The hardest part too for me was we left St. Louis where we had been living for about five years and moved to Pittsburgh. Um, I'd never been to Pittsburgh before. We didn't really know a ton of people here um, and I wasn't working. And so I felt like I was a fish out of water. And so this is again, going back to the first part of this interview, I started really internalizing and understanding what my parents went through when they moved to the United States. Granted, I can speak the language and I understand cultural cues and all that, but it was just really hard to be like, what is happening? Mm. On top of it, again, this was 2012. This was just the beginning um, of the research and the conversation around the motherhood penalty, and I didn't understand what that was.
0: The motherhood penalty. That idea that being a mother could negatively impact your career. That was the spark for Priya's next venture. After the break, we'll continue the conversation on that motherhood penalty and the need she saw to innovate in the childcare industry.
1: Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and from UW-Milwaukee. UWM believes innovative ideas don't only belong to business majors. The UWM Lubar Entrepreneurship Center aims to help students in all majors develop creative ideas, advance careers, and get startups started. UWM.edu.
0: Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and generator, a platform for the creative economy that connects startup founders, musicians, and artists information can be found at generator.com support for diverse disruptors season two comes from your membership and verizon helping 1 million small businesses through its small business digital ready program this online curriculum is designed to give small businesses the tools to succeed in today's digital world more information at citizenverizon.com support for diverse disruptors season two comes from your membership and northwestern mutual Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Information on tech advancement, venture investments, and careers at innovation.nm.com. What is the motherhood penalty?
2: So the motherhood penalty is um, a study that essentially states that once a woman has a child, her earning potential and career trajectory drops.
0: The motherhood penalty was first discussed in a study published in the American Journal of Sociology in March of 2007 by Shelley J. Correll, Stephen Bernard and N. Pike. Then there's the fatherhood bonus, another phenomenon discussed in the same study.
2: It's the inverse for men. When they um, have children, their career trajectory and potential for earning Mm. goes up. Interesting. And so what I started feeling, um, unfortunately, when I first left my job was I internalized all of my angst. I I just turned inward. And on top of it, again, we're conditioned in this country and in a lot of countries that your worth and your value are inextricably tied to what you do. So people ask you, what is your name? And then what do you do? So not having an answer that was deemed valuable by most of society for that second mm. question was really, really hard. Did you,
0: you felt devalued, I guess.
2: Like Totally. Mm. Totally. And again, because we do place so much value on how much you make or what your title is. I didn't have any of those things. I was a a mom, and that was it. On top of it, as well, we moved to um, you know a specific neighborhood in Pittsburgh where I didn't feel like I met many people of any who were in a similar situation who went from working full time to now being a stay-at-home parent. A lot of the folks that I met had just been stay-at-home parents since they had children or never had plans to work, and so it's just a different mindset. So I just felt very uh, isolated and alone, but. I've realized, and thank God I did this, because there was a point where, you know, I'm trying to meditate, I'm trying to, you know, figure out ways to manage my stress and my anxiety, I'm trying to raise my child. And I realized that um, what I actually need to do is go back to work. And the reason why I left in the first place again was I felt like I didn't have enough time with my son. Mm. He went from a nugget to like a walking, talking human who like used utensils and like wore little tennis shoes. And I'm like, no, this is too much. This is too fast. (laughs) I missed like the first two years of your life. And so when we moved here and I had about, you know, a year and a half, two years with him. And then I had my second child in the time I felt like, okay, you know what? I have spent so much time with you. It was the hardest two years of my life. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good. I want to do something that's going to st- stimulate my brain, and then I actually tried to look for a job, <laughs> and then you're just hit with that realization that like, oh, there's the motherhood pe- motherhood penalty in action.
0: Talk about the job search experience. Did did you feel discriminatory? Did they when you had? I assume you had interviews and all that. How did you feel? Like
2: yeah. It was it was hard. Again, I think I was also still at this point, not as um, well versed in just how much is stacked against those who take time off of work, whether it be for care responsibilities for a child or for, you know, um, a parent or for a special needs individual. It's a lot that's stacked against folks, specifically women who take time off of work.
0: Priya faced roadblock after roadblock in her job search, not getting a job or even the interview. It was frustrating. She started internalizing these failures and rejections, that it was somehow her fault because she decided to have a child, that she took time off to focus on being a mom.
2: I started working with a recruiter, and the recruiter told me, you know she stopped me and this was interesting because this was a woman as well and she stopped me at first and said just so you know you're going to be competing with a lot of people who don't have a gap on their resume you have a gap on your resume so you're going to have a lot harder time and i was like but isn't that your job like aren't you supposed to help me get something Mm. and so that's when the fire finally got lit under my butt i'm like this is bs Like, come on, you can't expect me to compete with folks that, you know, don't have a gap on their resume and be told, hey, you're going to have, you know, this handicap, essentially. So I finally was like, hey, if I can't get a job, then I'm going to just start something myself.
0: This is the spark, the moment when Priya launches her first company.
2: So I started a a marketing consulting company because I said, hey, let me create something that I can still be with my kids. And I can still work. I can use my brain. I'll, you know, work with some small businesses in the area. And I was thankfully doing great. But the biggest issue that I dealt with at this point was I had to try and balance when I had client meetings with when my kids napped or, Mm -hmm. oh, shoot, i got to make sure my kid's at daycare or I have a nanny or, 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 or," right?
0: Remember, this is pre-pandemic. When working from home wasn't nearly as common, and if you spend a lot of time on video calls these last 20 or so months, chances are you've only seen this motherhood dilemma only get worse.
2: So it came right back, you know, full circle to this place of why isn't there enough support for working parents? Why is there not more, even just understanding and knowledge that this is really difficult for anybody who's taken a, a break from work to get back mm-hmm. into the workplace. Anybody who chooses sort of a non-traditional professional route, whether it be consulting or freelancing, to create something meaningful. So that was like, all right, let's 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 do something. This this sticks.
0: You know, you're going through this, you know, epiphany. Um, this is what leads you to create your your startup flexible. So talk about the the process and the journey of doing this. Because you're never you know, you had the market consultant and, and now you're going to a space that is predominantly men at the time, I'm assuming. Still is predominantly men. Very rough space, people looking for funding and pitch decks and this whole world, uh, which is new to you. So talk to me about the process that, when you started this and how do you get it off the ground?
2: One thing that I'm, I'm grateful for is throughout this entire journey from the beginning to the end, I've had this unwavering focus on this North Star, which is figuring out why it's just so hard for working parents and figuring out a solution for that. That is what kind of cropped up in this first entrepreneurial endeavor that I did too, because I just kept running into that same problem. Why is it so hard to find childcare at the last minute? I tried to create a co-working space with drop-in childcare in the South Hills area of um, Pittsburgh. And it was interesting because even then that concept felt novel and people were like, that's a really great idea. And what that led to was um, there was somebody else who was doing almost exactly the same thing in a different part of town. And so she and I got together and realized that we had a ton in common and sparks flew. We said, let's actually not become competitors and let's create something together. So we essentially, you know, got business married and made a a work baby and (laughs) and made a business baby. (laughs) And um, that was the thesis of everything that we did was how can we incorporate life and work together? And the reason why we thought about it this way was because... For so long in the professional ecosystem, it's work-life balance, right? That's what everyone always talks about, work-life balance, work-life balance. Yeah. It's because life and everything that life throws at you or all the things that need to be fixed are the things that invariably are women's work and are taken for granted. So a lot of it is sort of Mm. like the, you know, invisible labor behind the scenes. And so work can get done (laughs) because that's being done. The way we saw it, though, was Mm -hmm. that that, life needs to be number one because that allows for more inclusion and that allows for more gender equity in the workplace. So we said, our North Star is life, work, fit. How are we going to create this? She and her business
0: partner got to work, raising that work baby. They applied to an accelerator program in Pittsburgh and got accepted, then landed $50,000 of seed funding. So I assume you started doing pitches, so talk about you know i always hear the stories about people i pitched 500 times before i got a nugget i 1000 times or i never got anything i just went back to a regular job talk about that experience especially in a a product that you're pitching to men that mostly probably oh don't understand God. the problem <laughs> what you going to with.
2: oh boy there was a lot of um yeah just uh, sexist behavior you know we encountered um few times going into a networking event, for example, where there was a room of, you know, mostly white men and feeling dismissed. You know, I um my my co-founder actually walked up to um an investor and a fellow entrepreneur and you know tried to insert herself into the conversation and the investor turns her and says, Oh, what are you doing here, honey? And she just walked away. It was just unreal. Or wow. the fact that to your point, Tariq, I can't tell you how many times We have pitched to private investors, to angel groups, um, to various funding sources and had the, uh, you know, partners or whoever say, oh, I should talk to my daughter about this. Oh, I should talk to my wife about this. Oh, I should talk to my nanny about this. No, you shouldn't, because we have all the, the numbers up here. This is a viable business opportunity that is scalable. You should be able to make the decision on your own.
0: So here's how it works. This is the problem she and her partner were working to solve on-demand childcare from trusted professionals.
2: Your nanny calls off, whatever, right? (laughs) That's what happens. And what do you do, right? What happens is um, somebody's got to take the day off. It's usually mom. 91% of the time it's mom. And then you miss out on important events, important meetings, career opportunities, whatever it may be. And so we said, how do you say on that Tuesday morning at seven a.m. when you find out? Oh shoot! It's actually a half day today. I completely forgot. You can find somebody at the last minute. So that was how it started. We realized as we started building out that uh, marketplace that there were quite a few competitors that were either building or in the same space. So we quickly pivoted to providing pop up, actual physical childcare on location. And we realized that there was a huge unmet market, especially with small to medium businesses and with the civic arena and in healthcare. So we started partnering with organizations, with nonprofits, with hospital systems, with government organizations to actually bring physical childcare on site in an office or in a conference room or wherever it was. That was magical. And it grew like gangbusters, especially here in Pittsburgh. We were able to pop up in over 1,500 locations over the course of about two years we took care of thousands of children we partnered with over 150 organizations it was wonderful and for the first time i felt like that bucket that had been sitting inside of me that i wanted to do good i wanted to do things that were actually helpful it was filling and filling and i'm like yes this is amazing and the best part too is from a purely you know qualitative almost selfish way i used it because i couldn't go to networking events before i couldn't you know talk to investors I would bring my kids and then my kids would be in flexible childcare and it was absolutely lovely. And so that continued up until the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, of course, um, governor Wolf here in Pittsburgh deemed all non-essential businesses to, to close and that childcare was a non-essential business, which is laughable, but um, it is what it is. And so we decided to pivot Mm. our business and we said, At least I said, I am not done with this. I don't think the world is done figuring this out. And more importantly, this is something that essential workers and parents in general just absolutely need right now.
0: So they pivoted again from a physical on-site model to a virtual one. They organized Zoom call with a musician or a singer or even an artist to spend time with the kids and keep them occupied. But the model quickly became unsustainable. Priya says while the programming was good, it took a lot of time and resource to plan and keep going virtually, which led him to make a very difficult decision.
2: It ended up kind of being a perfect storm, unfortunately, where we had actually created something really special and really wonderful, but it needed, it was such an uphill climb to get people to fund it and to believe in it um, that we ended up making the really tough, but very humane decision to close our doors earlier this summer, which was devastating, especially given the state of childcare in this country today.
0: So, yeah, um, I just want to say, I'm I'm happy you're willing to share this because, you know, there's a lot of podcasts and startups to talk about all the series A investments and the, acquisitions and all the good stories out there. And then people hear this, it's like, I want to be an entrepreneur. They don't know some of the real work and the struggles that go beyond it. So before, like, talk to me when you're in the pivot mode, assume you were pitching to investors, right? Trying to get more runway. Talk about that, that time and what that experience was like. What were people, what investors were saying to you then?
2: It was mind-bogglingly hard, and um, what was really difficult for me was feeling just everything drained from me personally. Like I could feel my resources draining, but I just kept saying, "No, keep going, keep going, keep going." Mm. And I had to have the really tough conversation with myself, with my family, with my team, and say, "What are we up? What are we up for?" Because this is an uphill battle. The the. Part of the reason why it's been an uphill battle, and this is the tough part, is even though it feels like there's literally on a daily basis an article in the Atlantic or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or whatever about the child care crisis, there was still hesitation among the investor world to invest in something like childcare. So it was it was devastating. And unfortunately, what I ended up doing was doing the same thing I did in the past was I internalized the shutting down of this company is my personal failure. That was a really hard reckoning and I've had time to reflect on it, but it's been, it, that was really so, hard. So,
0: you know, talking, you you shut down flexible, you're bitter. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I think people need to hear this. It's, it's because business people just think it's a, a, it's a, it's a, it's just a rosy world in this space. Like, what is you you hear about serial entrepreneurs, they fail all the time, like they come back, they build something else. What are you what is your emotions right now?
2: So I'm so glad you brought that up because I was having this conversation with someone and this this notion popped up in the conversation, which I thought was spot on. To your point, you know, in the entrepreneur space, you're told fail fast or fail often or whatever. Yeah. But I think that men are able to fail up, right? And women, not so much, right? Like men, when they fail, it's like, oh, what's your next thing? Whereas women, and I personally experienced this too. The first question is what happened? What went wrong? What did you do? What would you have done differently? Mm -hmm. Dude, is that what you ask a guy? Like, is that what's happening in those conversations? And I just feel like the bar is set so high for women. Um, it's, it's really, really hard, especially for women of color. And then, you know, it's set lower for men and it's unimaginably low for white men. And so it's, it's maddening to me to think about the entrepreneur space as it currently is right now. I don't think I want to enter it again, at least not right this moment.
0: Again, thank you for sharing your story because most people don't realize like majority of startups do fail, but you don't see that in TechCrunch, You don't see that on you know, this we can start out with Jason Calcanis. You don't see that on how I built this. It's all about the success, success, success. And they're the rare gem. So again, appreciate you for sharing the story because I think that needs to be said. And on that note, what would you tell I me? Mean, you're bitter. <laughs> uh, what would you tell an entrepreneur, especially a woman of color entrepreneur that's probably experienced the same thing? What w- words of wisdom, what would you tell, yeah. tell them? <laughs>
2: I would say, give me six months and come back to me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, You know, just because there's been a setback or just because it didn't quite work out the way that you had hoped or planned doesn't mean that it didn't work out. And I think one of my, my COO actually told me this. She's so wonderful. She said, you've planted seeds. You don't know what those are going to turn into, but you've planted seeds. I'd like to think that anybody who has started something, whether it be in like a social impact realm or whatever it may be, has planted seeds. And you may not see them because they may be buried deep, but they're germinating and they're growing and it may lead to something bigger. Because one of the things that I'm proud of is when COVID started, there was sort of this movement around just reimagining childcare and Flexible was a part of that. And that's continuing to grow and create waves and get uh, recognition on the national level. And so I'm happy to say that we were a part of that initial push, but um, those seeds will germinate. They'll come up and hopefully you'll be able to see the fruits of that. But even if you don't, just know that they're there.
0: Many thanks to Priya Meen for sharing a very personal story, a difficult one other founders may be reluctant to share but important to hear because all of those double standards we mention along gender lines, just the idea, the fact that there's this motherhood penalty in the first place. There's still so much work to do in this space to bring gender equity to mothers in the workplace. While the startup world may not have been ready for her startup Flexible, even though the world needs ideas like this more than ever, we still need founders like Priya to keep fighting for equity and innovative ideas like hers with Flexible. Coming up on episode three of Diverse Disruptors season two, my conversation with Henri-Pierre Jacques, managing partner and co-founder of Harlem Capital. It's a venture capital fund with the mission of changing the face of entrepreneurship by investing in 1,000 diverse founders over its first 20 years. That's next time on Diverse Disruptors.
1: Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is presented by University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Northwestern Mutual, and Generator, with support from Verizon, United Way's Tequity, and Elverno College. With handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab, Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, Executive produced by Nate Imig and audio engineering by Kenny Perez. Segment producing by Salam Fatayr and 88.9's web editor is Evan Retleski. Radio Milwaukee's marketing team is led by director Sarah Lar, with creative and coordinating support by Aaron Bagada. Community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dori Zori is 88.9's program director and Kevin Suker is our executive director. Of course, biggest thanks to our members, for making this and all content from Radio Milwaukee possible. If you're interested in learning more about Radio Milwaukee membership, visit radiomilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. And while you're there, check out our other podcasts, including Diverse Disruptors Season 1. That's at radiomilwaukee.org podcasts. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.